Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host Simon Skidmore. In this series we have been examining the book of Numbers through the lens of mimetic theory. The early chapters emphasize the importance of the Mosaic law and a unified, unwavering desire for the promised land within the community. If the people lose sight of this object, they become distracted by their whims and cravings and will eventually die in the wilderness. We have seen numerous mimetic crises break out as the community engage in mimetic rivalry with each other over the objects of comfort and security. On numerous occasions this desire prompted many of the people to abandon their pursuit of Canaan and attempt to return to their slavery in Egypt. Maintaining a fervent desire for the promised land will unite the community and enable them to resist the idols of comfort and security. The community they then rally around this desired object and vent their mimetic rivalries outwards towards their common rivals, the inhabitants of Canaan. By these means, the community will be empowered to navigate and endure their suffering within their wilderness wanderings, and ultimately harness the power of the primitive sacred to take possession of the land of Canaan. Let's read on now from chapter 19. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without a defect in which there is no blemish and on which a yoke has never come. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water, and shall be unclean until evening. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for water, for impurity, for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. And if he does not cleanse himself on the third and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not thrown on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. So here we are again, wrestling with another text addressing sacrifice and impurity. 
Before we dive in, let's briefly review the mimetic approach we've taken to these concepts in earlier episodes. In many ancient societies, purity concerns were very much driven by the yuck factor. Things that invoked disgust were believed to generate impurity, such as sex acts, weeping, ulcerated skin, blood, urine, feces, and death. The ancient peoples projected the disgust they felt with these acts and objects onto God and assumed that their deities must be protected from impurity at all costs. If the deity experiences disgust, they may flee from their sanctuary and no longer dwell among the people. Alternatively, divine violence may break out against impurity. So managing impurity was an important part of managing and protecting the primitive sacred. Those who were considered impure were isolated to prevent impurity spreading to others or even the sanctuary. You may recall that in our series on Leviticus, I likened this isolation to our contemporary practice of quarantining COVID-positive patients. To harness divine blessing while avoiding outbreaks of divine violence, ancient peoples devised various rituals to cleanse impurity from people and sacred objects. The ritual described in Numbers chapter 19 provides us with an example of an attempt to purge impurity contracted through contact with a dead body. You can see the yuck factor right here. The sight and smell of a decaying corpse has the power to elicit a very strong disgust reaction. To appreciate the emotive side of this situation, let's conduct a quick thought experiment. Imagine that someone has just removed the corpse of a dead relative out of their house. Will you be eager to shake hands with this person? In all likelihood, you'll experience at least some reluctance as you consider that they have been contaminated by a dead body. The very hands that you're about to touch with your own hands have been contaminated. They, what the ancients would consider impure. You feel this withdrawal, this disgust at the mere thought of the thing. It's not necessarily logical or practical, but there's something within all of us that causes us to recoil in response to such stimuli, which the ancients called impurity. To help purge this impurity, certain rituals were designed. The red cow rite of Numbers chapter 19 serves as an example of one of these rituals. In this ritual, a red cow is brought to the priest who slaughters it outside the camp. Why outside the camp? Think of the area outside the camp as a safe area. If divine violence were to break out in this area, at least the community living inside the camp are at a safe distance away. Certain rituals are performed outside the camp for the same reason military groups test explosives and other weaponry in the desert, to minimize casualties if and when anything goes wrong. It's also the place where capital offenders were commonly executed. For example, we saw the blasphemer of Leviticus 24 taken outside the camp and stoned by his community. Likewise, the red cow of Numbers chapter 19 is taken outside the camp and slain. Afterward, the priest flows some of the animal's blood in the direction of the tent of meeting, otherwise known as the tabernacle where the primitive sacred resides. 
at this point it becomes apparent that we are dealing with another pantomime. The priest traces a blood trail leading from the red cow outside the camp towards the primitive sacred. When viewed from within the camp, the blood trail would appear to lead out from the primitive sacred, suggesting that divine violence had broken out and slaughtered the red cow. The cow is then completely burnt with fire, again recreating the destructive fire of divine violence which breaks out from the primitive sacred. From a mimetic perspective, this ritual attempts to recreate the purging of mimetic violence outwards from the primitive sacred against an external party, such as an enemy tribe. Cedar, hyssop and scarlet yarn are also thrown into the fire and burnt alongside the red cow's corpse. These objects were commonly used in ritual cleansings in the Bible. By burning these objects along with the red cow's corpse, the tools by which animal blood is ritually harnessed to cleanse impurity are integrated into the red cow's ashes. When these ashes are added to water, the mixture possesses magical purificatory powers for those who have come in contact with a dead body. Later verses explain that this water can also be used to purify a tent in which someone has died. Notice that even the ritual to produce the water for cleansing requires a delicate dance between impurity and purity. Their roles in this ritual render the priest, the person who burns the cow, and the person who gathers its ashes unclean until evening. So this ritual defiles those engaged in the production of the cleansing water. From a mimetic perspective, the red cow represents a pantomime of divine violence. The red cow becomes an impure anathema who bears the community's impurity as it is destroyed by divine violence. The impurity associated with the red cow is contracted by those who participate in this ritual, making them unclean until evening. But while the red cow itself is considered an impure anathema, its ashes represent the sacred, purifying destruction of divine violence. For this reason, the ashes must be relocated to a pure place outside the camp, lest they become defiled. When added to water, this token of divine purifying violence can purge impurity contracted from a human corpse. Such is the power of divine violence which transforms the impure anathema into something sacred and holy. A similar transformation is generated by the scapegoat mechanism which transfers the impure anathema of the community's scapegoat into a sacred object of veneration. The story of Korah, Datham and Abiram also demonstrated transformation as the senses belonging to these malefactors are integrated into the holy altar itself. Mimetic violence gives birth to the sacred by destroying what is considered impure and anathema. This explanation of the red cow rite prompts us to think about the relationships between mimetic violence and impurity. According to Girard, purity systems are inspired and driven by mimetic violence. In one place, Girard suggests that menstrual impurity 
is considered to be impure because it reminds people of the blood spilt by mimetic violence. He assumes that ancient men believed that if they came in contact with menstrual blood, they would contract a violent contagion which could potentially spread through the entire community. Personally, I don't buy it. I think this is one of these occasions where Girard really pushes his theory beyond the boundaries of plausibility. Yet I think mimetic theory may still be fruitfully applied to help explain the relationship between mimetic violence and impurity. I would propose a different model for considering the interaction between purity and mimetic violence in the Bible. In his book, The Scapegoat, Gerard lays out four stereotypes for communal scapegoats. According to Gerard, we can discern the scapegoat mechanism within a given text by observing at least two of these stereotypes. One of these stereotypes is what Gerard calls the sign of the victim. Gerard notes that scapegoats often have a mark of differentiation which separates them from the rest of their community, such as a skin condition or a limp. Social factors such as poverty, wealth, political power or nationality may also serve as the sign of the victim under certain circumstances. In the midst of a mimetic crisis, the community will search for a small token of differentiation to help select their scapegoat. Once their scapegoat is selected, they are regarded as the anathema which caused the crisis and ejected from their community, either exiled or executed. This idea prompts another question. What sort of emotional factors might drive this decision? After all, the selection of a scapegoat is not a calm, logical process, but an instinctive act which takes place within the heightened emotional atmosphere of the mimetic crisis. As we've already noted, disgust is often associated with impurity and elicits rejection and withdrawal. In the midst of a mimetic crisis, impurity may serve as the sign of the victim if it elicits disgust within the community. I think the power of disgust and possibly other emotions to inspire the rejection and persecution of a communal scapegoat may be the missing link between impurity and mimetic violence. In time, the community develops its own rituals such as the red cow rite, which helps protect individuals from mimetic violence within a mimetic crisis by purging impurity. To avoid scapegoating a human, an animal substitute is burnt in a pantomime of divine violence. Having been purged through a pantomime of sacred violence, the beast's ashes become imbibed with the sacred power of purification. These ashes are then mixed with water and used to purge any impurity associated with death. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.